probably it was about 10 years ago, I think, I started taking scripture memory a little bit more intentional as far as making it a discipline. I'm not uh, the poster child for how to do this, just kind of muddling my way through. But what I end up doing, I don't know if it's helpful for you, for you or not, uh, you only have so much time. And so uh, about two to three months a year, usually in the summer, I'll take my time that I use for my quiet time, devotional time, and just memorize a, a hunk, several chapters, a chapter, and just kind of camp on that. What we're trying to do in our series on It All Adds Up, Second Peter chapter 1, 1 through 11, we are trying to memorize, or at least some of y'all are. I appreciate that because as we quote when I'm getting lost and off kilter, I can count on somebody uh, to help out. So if, in fact, you, you, you have your Bibles, why don't you turn to Second Peter uh, 1, and that way you can follow along if you don't have it memorized. Otherwise, if you've got it memorized, you can quote it with me, or at least as I try. Now, uh, one, we're going to verse 7, I believe, today. So let's give it a shot. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith and to goodness and to knowledge and to self-control and to perseverance and to godliness and to brotherly kindness. Next week, let's add two more verses. And y'all got to get louder. There's a lot more people in here than the first service. But the first service is really about three times y'all's volume. I don't want to. We're not comparing and stuff. But just so you know. When I was uh, uh, in, in high school, my, there was a kid who was the president of the, the youth group I went to. I was a freshman. And uh, one thing I remember about this guy is he had a, like a 68 GTO. I mean, it was cool. It was really cool. And he was dating my sister, so I got a ride in it once in a while. But, but he was a key guy on campus. He was uh, the high school there. He went on to Bible college. He graduated from Bible college. He went on to seminary. And about the time he was to graduate from seminary, uh, he walked away from the faith. That's a bit disconcerting. Uh, after I got done with Moody, it was, Moody was a three-year college at that point, and all my friends went on to college somewhere else to finish up their degree, but I was out of money and I was out of energy, so I went home. And while I was home, a church down the block from us, they just got a new pastor, a neat guy, I liked him, he had a lot of passion and zeal and new ideas and uh, committed to the word of God. Uh, so when he walked away from the church and his family and the faith, that was a bit disconcerting. When I was in one of the churches I was in in the past, there was a, a key lay leader uh, gal in the church. We used to call her Mrs. Awana because she was just pumping and she knew. And, and so when she walked away from the faith, that was very disturbing. I have another close friend. She was a discipler of women. She did a great job. You wanted someone discipled, she's the one you sent them to because she'd get them solidified, if that's a word. Uh, but when she walked away from the faith, 
that was bothersome. I spent a lot of years in youth ministry and uh, I saw a lot of kids who are key leaders in the youth group and in their high schools only to hear when they hit college. And I got several pictures in my mind. They, too, walked away from their faith. Have you ever known anybody make a profession for, for Christ and they burned hot with Jesus? They did. And they would look like it. And they were there and they were on top of it. They understood it. They were willing to make the sacrifice only to find out that they end up walking away. We're going to do a very brief survey in just a second. But if you know of somebody personally, whether it's a child or a parent or a sibling or a, a co-worker, somebody in church, a small group leader, Sunday school, if you know of somebody personally who claimed to know Christ, professed Christ, but they walked away, if you know such a person, would you raise your hand? Let's just see how many of us are in that. My goodness. Well, you know, if you think about these folk, and then also think about them through your own personal experience. You don't just live for the Lord. You're hot. You're excited about Christ one day. And the next day you wake up and go, yeah, I think I'm going to dump it. Yeah, I think I'm going to go a different direction. There's usually a reason why or reasons why. Maybe it's persecution. Uh, when I was in, I think, sixth grade, uh, I remember in gym class at Laramie Junior High, Behind this stage, this kid grabbed my arm and stuck it behind me and said, Deny Christ. I'm thinking, I'm a sixth grader. Get out of here. Uh, but maybe you face ridicule or persecution or, or you know, or brothers and sisters who are really in uh, some of the Muslim extremist or Hindu extremist or communistic countries, torture and death. It's not. It's really a strange thing for your faith. And you can bet that you come to that place and you hit that crossroads, you're starting to say, I sure hope this is true, <laughs> because I'm going to pay the price here. You know, it's like John the Baptist. He's in prison getting ready to be beheaded. He sends a note to Jesus. Uh, are, you, are you really the one? I mean, because I just need to know for sure, because I'm really ready to die here for this thing. And I just kind of want to make sure that this is right. Uh, or maybe it's a understanding of a loss. You, you know that, that if you do what Christ wants you to do here, you say what he wants you to say, you're going to make some people mad. And, and you might lose some friends. And if you, if you do what he's called you to do, you're going to get your boss upset at you. And man, you might lose your job and you don't cause some trouble and you just don't want to do that. And uh, so you start thinking that through. Man, this is, gonna, this is awful costly. Or maybe the, the assault is, is a mental assault. It's an intelligence assault. You, get, you, get, you become a Christian. You're following Christ and everything's exciting. And then you start listening to some talking heads on television or radio or you read a book or you've got a professor. And they're laughing and mocking at how ridiculous it is that somebody would actually believe that Christian stuff. Those people are living in the, the dark ages and they deny science and they deny archaeology and they deny history. I can't believe that somebody would be so weak, such a moron. And you're thinking, I don't want to be a moron. You know, maybe is there some truth to what they're saying? Maybe this is all a psychological deal. And then what, what you do is you go through your own experience. And you know, you know the times where you've prayed hard. God, you've got all the faith you've, you can possibly muster. You can't imagine somebody having more faith. And you pray and nothing happens. And so you go to the Word, because they say you find God in the Word. So you're reading the Word. You say, okay, God, I want you to speak to me. I really do want to hear your voice. And so you're reading about them putting blood on the high priest's big toes. And, and you're reading these genealogies with these names you don't understand. And you're seeing where, where God commanded His people in the Old Testament to go into a town and murder the, the children and the women. And you're going, man, do I align myself with that? I, I don't, I'm not finding God here. If I am, I don't like what I'm finding. 
And then you, you maybe look into your church. Not us. Other people do this at their churches. But you see hypocritical folk. People who, who uh, maybe they can talk the game, but you know they are uh, uh, as unloving as they come. Uh, they, they gossip or they're prideful or whatever the issues are. Hypocrites. And then you look outside the walls of the church. And they look like they're more normal than the people in the church. And they're definitely having more fun than the people in the church. And you're going, man, I don't, hmm, I just, maybe this is the way to go. And all of these things put together form a perfect storm to assault your faith. And maybe this is why Peter, because he knows the guys he's writing to, are going to face some real serious storms. He says, you've got to add to your faith. You know, God's given you your faith. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. He gave it to you by, based on his righteousness. But, 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 but then if you want to be effective in this world, you want to be productive, you've got to add to that faith goodness, which we said is that desire to know him and to be beaten on all cylinders and to, to uh, live your life for him. And if you've got that desire, great. Then you better add knowledge, which is not just head knowledge. It's, ex- it's experiential knowledge of who God is through his word, what his will is. And then, if you got that understanding, you better put it into practice, so you need to, to add self-control. And then, if you're adding self-control in your work, in, Peter says, you better add perseverance. Interesting word. Perseverance, does the word not infer storms? Let's face it, you don't need perseverance if every day is Disney World, right? And if it's all sunshine and cotton candy and, and rainbows, I mean, who in the, you don't need to, this does it not hard to keep going. But Peter says perseverance, which means the novelty is going to wear off. It's not going to be fun anymore. There's going to be times when it is hard to keep going. That's what the word means. It's, it's personified, I think, in the story of, of Wilma Rudolph. You know Wilma Rudolph? If you're a runner, you may. Uh, Wilma was, was, was uh, born shortly thereafter. She contracted polio, which left her left leg severely uh, bent in. Her, her foot was bent in. So she wore braces for about seven years, seven years of, of therapy, for, finally got her out of the braces. When she was 12, she tried out for the girls' basketball team. She didn't make it, but she was determined. So she got together with a friend and two boys and practiced for a full year. Then next year, she made the team. While she was playing, for for whatever reason, there was a college track coach who was there. He was watching his daughter, but he watched this girl running up and down the the court. Afterwards, he approached Wilma and her parents and said, Hey, I'm a college track coach. Do you mind if I train you to run? Would you work with me? Yes. Within a couple years, Wilma Rudolph was one of the fastest female sprinters in the United States. She goes to the Olympics in 1956. Doesn't do very well, though. But she comes back and says, I'm going back, but this time I'm going to do well. So you can imagine how hard she worked. So in 1960, when she went to Rome for the Olympics, she came back with three gold medals. That's what the word means. It it means that when the, the storms are coming, you don't just say, well, I guess there are storms. It means you just keep on moving. You don't let them slow you down, or at least you're going to give everything you got to move ahead. So when the dust settles, you didn't just kind of hunker in and, and, and stay put. You've gained some ground on this thing. That's what the word's referring to. That's what he's talking about. And you might say, okay, well, I understand perseverance in the physical arena. It makes sense. I got that. But how do you apply this in the spiritual arena? I mean, do you just deny reality? We all know folk, Christian folk, who just deny reality, pretend it's not there, and just, it's okay. Uh, just, they call that faith. Is that what we're talking about here? It's not what we're talking about here. 
Let's look at a case study in Scripture. I think this is the greatest uh, chapter for perseverance. I believe it's the reason why God has put it in there to show you and I uh, what happens when you don't get it, how to get it, and how all of us can have it. We're going to need it. So if you've got your Bibles, if you'll turn with me to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. What a... a Neat sum. I'm not even going to say it's my favorite chapter, uh, but it's a cool, cool chapter all the same. Uh, superscript. It says a psalm of Asaph. Well, let's just stop there for just a second. Who in the world is Asaph? A couple things you need to know. Asaph was a Levite. Okay, that's going to come in play in a second. Asaph was also uh, one of King David's direct reports. Asaph was the minister, or one of the ministers of music. Now, when you think of that, don't think you, you know, worship pastor guy, because being the worship pastor in a theocratic place in the nation of Israel was huge. I mean, every Jewish person's mind rotated around the tabernacle and coming to worship. And the tabernacle was the tent thing. It would be turned into the temple later on. But it's, it's the tabernacle. And every Jewish person realized that when you go there, that's kind of where God resides. That's where you find atonement. And that's where you have connection with God and praise. So, so every Jewish person's heart and mind is towards the tabernacle and worshiping God. That's why we were created. So this guy who's the minister of, of worship, that's a huge leadership position. And so Asaph says, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And this we would assume this was prob- probably the right thing for the, the leader of worship to write. This is the kind of guy that was godly, who knew worship better than anybody else. He's the one you wanted your daughter to marry. And so we understand verse one. Yeah, OK, that's that's what we would expect. But we don't expect what he says in verse two. He says, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. And we go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Ace, hang on, wait, time out, buddy. What's the problem? You know, I hear working for King David. I mean, you guys kind of a uh, task. I understand. You know, he probably wants contemporary music. Use my songs. You know, use my. And you like the Psalms from Moses. You like that more traditional stuff. And he's pushing. But I understand that kind of pressure. Or, or maybe it's the issue that you know you come to choir practice and those guys aren't prepared and they're goofing around and they're kind of blowing you off. And man, what are you going to do? Or maybe your trumpeters are all on strike. You know, or the the harp guys all were picking blueberries or something the other day and they got their hands are swollen. They were in poison sumac. And you got the feast of booths coming up and two weeks and you're going oh man all these people are going to be here I got this big thing and I'm not prepared is that the issue all these people complaining maybe the drums are too loud and the harps I can't hear them and the robes you picked out is, is that the problem Asaph it's not it's not Asaph's problem you got to know which face that stuff but that's not his problem verse 3 for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked this is amazing that this guy is a spiritual key leader. Which key spiritual leaders think this kind of stuff? You'd be surprised. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph had a, a worldview here, um, earthly perspective. And we need to know earthly perspective always equals spiritual slippage. Uh, an earthly perspective is, is a worldview. It's, it's a paradigm. It's the, the grid through which you see. Every one of us have a paradigm. Every one of us have a worldview. Every one of us have our spirit formed in some way or another. Uh, it's been formed by your heritage. It's been formed by your church experience in the past, dysfunctional or good, whatever else. All of who you are, everything you've experienced goes into this grid 
through which you look and you see the world. And Asaph is, is looking at the world and he's struggling right now in a major way. He unpacks this for us, but we need to know that an earthly perspective, I'm going to ask you, do you have one? will always equal spiritual slippage. Now, this is a cool psalm in that you can tell the breaks by the pronouns. So look at the pronouns, starting in verse 4. It gives you an idea of what spirit, what an what a earthly perspective is. Verse 4, he says, They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. Again, where these guys are coming from is a normal understanding was that physical blessings equaled God's approval. And so Asaph is looking at these guys who don't give a rip about God. And he says, man, you'd think these guys would have some issues, you know. Maybe they would have athlete's foot or they would, I don't know, bronchitis or something. Maybe just just strike them with ugly or something, God. But these guys, no, these guys are good looking and they're strong and they're healthy and they don't give a rip about you. What's the deal? And here, I, I, what's, what's the problem with that, God? And he says, it goes on, he says, they have no struggles, their bodies are healthy and strong. It's like Teflon folk. The rain comes down. It comes my way. For some reason, these guys are living in sunshine all the time. What is that about? They don't have the issues that I have. They are free. Notice the days, right? The pronouns. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. This is therefore pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. You see, things start to progress. Life is going well for them. And they know it. And they are assuming that it's going well for them just because they are who they are. And they're going to let you know it. Gentile and sweet and kind of, they're actually Gentiles, but but genteel and sweet and nice. Uh, This is not them. These are self-made cocky folk. Uh, He says, from their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. These guys are incredibly creative. They are MacGyver types, but they use their ingenuity to create new ways of, to sin. You know, they push their depravity out. Uh, I had a friend in college, she, she used to say, Oh, the creative genius of a depraved mind at a point of idleness. Uh, you know, I don't like how that rep- works out, but that's very true, isn't it? Oh, the creative genius of a depraved mind at the point of idleness. And these guys are letting their depravity and their creativity mix up and run hog wild. It says that they scoff. You see how this is building. They scoff and speak with malice in their arrogance. They threaten oppression. Now they've gotten to a point where they are mocking those who follow Yahweh. They are giving them grief. Oh, you Christians. That's what we, oh, you Christians. You goody two shoes. Uh, giving, giving them, giving them uh, uh, confusion and pain verbally for who they are. It says their mouths lay claim to heaven. Uh, I have no authority but me. And their tongues take possession of the earth. With their tongues they manipulate. With their tongues they lie. With their tongues they, they gossip. With their tongues they deceive. With their tongues they win. That's what Asaph is saying can't believe that they get and they're getting away with it. It says, therefore, their people turn to them in abundance or the drink, uh, drink up waters in abundance. You know, he's saying these are the guys that paparazzi want to be around. These are the guys that have the microphone stuffed in their mouth. Everybody wants to know what they have to say, whether it's any common sense or not. They, everyone wants to be like them. They're the most popular people. And it ought not to be. They say, let's see how this is building. They say, how can God know? 
does the Most High have knowledge? The ultimate. They, they diss God. If there's a God, clueless. This is their mindset. This is what they're saying. This is where they're at. He says, this is what the wicked are like. Always carefree. They increase in wealth. You would would think that these folk, God would would bash them, but they keep being blessed and blessed and blessed. Uh, Earthly perspective. You you notice the the, the pronouns? They, 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 them, there, they, them, there. And what are they in relation to? It's they're in relationship to material stuff. They've got it. They're doing this. They're like this. They're okay. They're arrogant. They're they're making it. That earthly, earthly perspective. Earthly perspective. He goes on because earthly perspective has another part. Notice the pronouns. Verse 13. It says, Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. Now look at Eugene Peterson in his uh, message paraphrase. He, I like what he does with this. He says, What's going on here? Is God out to lunch? Nobody's tending the store. The wicked get by with everything. They haven't made piling up riches. I've been stupid to play by the rules. What has it gotten me? A long run of bad luck. That's what. A slap in the face every time I walk out the door. Oh, man, have you ever had the the Asaph dilemma, the worldly perspective that looks at them in relation to what they've got and looks at me in relation to what I don't. Poor me. I'm a victim. Poor me. Everyone's always coming against me. Nobody understands me. People are hard on me and they're talking about me and they're mean to me. And me, 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 me. That's, that's an earthly perspective. And if you have an earthly perspective, spiritual slippage will be there in time. It just will. It just will. Look what he says in verse 15. He says, If I had said I will speak thus, I'm just going to tell people what I'm thinking. I'm just going to let them all know. I would have betrayed your children. Can you imagine? One Sunday, Pastor Dave Schneider stands up here. You like Dave? I like Dave. Good godly guy, right? He stands up here and he says, you know what? You know, just so you know, I've been thinking about this a long time. I have wasted my life. There is no God we have wasted our time. You have wasted your time, just so you know. And then he turned around and walked away. Can you imagine the pain? What might that do to people's faith? Well, that's... By the way, he's not there. No one sent him letters. No one started praying for him on that regard. Uh, he's okay. Uh, but Asaph says, if I would have said what I was thinking, that would have hurt too many people. I couldn't go down that road. I, I, I couldn't do that. And then he says, when I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. The more I wrestled with this thing inside, the more I struggled with this, the more depressed I got. I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I was, he was ready to walk away. The main spiritual leader in the, the nation, ready to walk away. And then verse 17. Until I entered the sanctuary of God. Oh, don't you love that word? Until. I'd circle. That's a good word. Until. Until I entered the sanctuary of God. Uh, Theologians, Old Testament commentators, kind of back and forth on what exactly the sanctuary is here. Uh, 
one thing they know, this is the turning point. This is what transformed his old paradigm, his old way of thinking, the earthly perspective, to a heavenly perspective. Sanctuary. Now, sanctuary, whatever else it may be, is, is where God is, the presence. Most probably for Asaph, it would incorporate the tabernacle grounds. Now, this is fascinating because Asaph went to sanctuary every single day. This is where he worked. He was the worship person. He was a Levite. He had access, not necessarily to the holy place, the most holy place, but he had access to a lot of, a lot of the grounds. But, but, but he must not, it would seem, uh, have always been there in his, in his heart. Now, this is why this is so important for us. You know as well as I do uh, that you can have quiet time. You can go to Bible study. You can go to prayer meeting. All good things, wonderful things. But if you go there without your volition plugged in, you're not going to sanctuary. If you don't go to quiet time saying, you know what, this is kind of scary because I want my life to look like this book. And Lord, would you show me some place I need to change and I need to grow? And I might die to myself. If you don't go to Bible study thinking, you know what, I want God to grow me. And sometimes that's painful. And I expect him to show me something in his word that I'm going to have to change here. If you don't go with that kind of understanding, you know what, you don't go to sanctuary. Yeah, time with God is word is wonderful, but it ends up being hobby. It's it's not sanctuary. But when you go, if you go with an expectation, a consciousness of God's presence, and He wants to do something, and He's going to do something through His Word, it's a different ball of wax. It's, at one point, Asaph, in his pain and his hurt and his confusion, he walks into the sanctuary. I think the, the tabernacle grounds, maybe the courtyard. I like to think after hours sometime. And he's been there a billion times, but he goes and he stops off at the, the altar. He looks at the altar. He's walked by it a million times. And he stops and thinks. He says, you know, this really is what it's all about. Yeah, God knows me, my stuff, who I'm about, the, my, my, my failings, my doubts, everything else. But he wants a relationship with me. And it's not based on my goodness. It's not based on my service. It's not based on whether or not I can pull together a great cantata for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's, it's based on sacrifice, on, on him making atonement for my sins. And by the way, just as an aside, all the sacrifices in the Old Testament were a picture of one day Christ's cross. Just so you know, we don't get to him because we've got to fix it up because Ace, if you know, better pull it together and then we can, can start talking. But only through Christ, you got that. Well, he stops up at the altar. He sees that. Maybe he goes to the laver which is kind of like a big bird bath, and, and it's where the priests would wash their hands and feet before they go into the holy place. And, it's, yeah, the real dirt comes off, but it's a picture that God wants us pure and clean before we enter his presence. Not because we got to, this is the cool part, not because we got to try harder to get clean. He does it for us. That's fantastic. And maybe Asaph goes and he looks at the, the, the scrolls that they kept there, the Torah, the word of God. And he stops and he thinks through the promises of God. He's been working here all this time and he's been missing it. How many folk have been coming to church to hold and they're just missing it? And maybe Asaph starts to sing a song that Babers, he's, he's taught people many times. But now he's singing from his heart. And he begins to worship. 
says, ah, this is what it's about. In sanctuary, there's a shift, there's a change. We can try all we want, we can read all the other stuff we want, but we need to know that doesn't bring about the transformation. We still have the world, the earthly perspective. It may alter it a little bit, but it's only in sanctuary because change is not just a head knowledge thing. It's the Holy Spirit moving through God's word to change us, to give us a heavenly perspective. And now look at the heavenly perspective. And again, look at the pronouns. Pronouns will tell us the whole thing. Surely you place them. Still talking about the them, but surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. Over here, with the earthly perspective, was them, 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 them. They're, they're, they're stuff in relation to their stuff. But a heavenly perspective is them and God. You notice, too, when he's got a heavenly perspective, he kicks into prayer. He wasn't praying earlier. He was just talking to himself. But now he's praying. And a heavenly perspective sees people in relationship to God. And he's saying, oh man, I thought these guys had it made. But when I see them in in their lack of relationship to God, their situation's not so good. He goes on. Verse 21. Notice the pronouns. This when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet... I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will take me into glory. Some folk will say, folk in the Old Testament, who don't know anything about the afterlife in heaven. I don't know what you do with, with that. I think they, they truly did. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You, you see, the earthly perspective, me, 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 and I fail, and I don't have enough, and I get ripped off all the time. But a, a, a heavenly perspective of me sees me and my relationship to God. Isn't, isn't he come 180 here? Beginning, he's saying, you know, I want their prosperity. And over here, he's saying, earth has nothing I desire but you. Oh, man. Now, if in fact, this is what's for us, if we draw our perspective of the world through CNN and Newsweek and Fox, we're going to miss the eternal. You know, the United States is one of the few places that will put, has the audacity to put on their currency, in God we trust. And you would think, if we're going to put in God we trust, we're going to go out there like that, then God ought to do some blessing, but all we ever see is pain and trouble and, and divorce and crime and torture and, and political corruption and institutional corruption and ecclesiological corruption. And, well, all that's true, but you've got to keep in mind, 150 years ago in this country, we embraced slavery. The churches, for the most part, embraced slavery, where we would tell people, uh, some people, that they were not worth as much as we were. They were chattel. They had no rights. They had no, no, uh, uh, no relationship with the Creator God. But if it weren't for some Christian abolitionists who changed that, we'd still be there. A hundred years ago, Latinum's abuse in the United States was so pervasive that folk have, have speculated that at any given point in the United States, a hundred years ago, one half of the population was stoned on laudanum. You know, a hundred years ago, in the Sears and Roebuck catalog, you could order a syringe filled with heroin. Fifty years ago, in the United States, liberal Christianity was born or came over from Europe, marginalizing the scripture, marginalizing Christ's resurrection, marginalizing what it meant to be born again. But, but now, now today... 
Just think about today for a second. People who claim to be born again. A former president of the United States, former secretary of state, former attorney general. You've got governors and senators and congressmen. You've got some of the CEOs of some of our biggest corporations, myriads of professional athletes. You've got authors like John Grisham. You've got U2's Bono claiming Christ. Ninety percent of Americans claim Christ. I know, I know, but 90 percent of them at least claim that Christianity. If you were to make a list of the most effective, the largest and most effective churches in America, almost without exception, every one of those would be churches that hold high the word of God and claim Jesus Christ we needs to be submitted to. You know, there are fewer R-rated movies today than there were 10 years ago. One of the most famous a couple of years ago, The Passion of Christ. Most best-selling book in America, other than the Bible, is The Purpose Driven Life. You've got movies like Courageous and, and what is it, Fireproof. Not just in the churches, but, but, but popular in, in the, the secular environment as well. Listen to a, uh, a cynic, and we can all be cynics of, of America. See, that's it's easy to be. Here's a legitimate cynic. His name is Justin Webb. Justin is a BBC correspondent hanging out in Washington. He wrote this several years ago about the U.S. He says, my wife and I do not believe in God. In our first posting in Brussels among the nominal Catholic Belgians, unbelief was not a problem. The Bush administration hums to the sound of prayer. Prayer meetings take place day and night. Before that in London, it was not remotely an issue. With the sole exception of one friend who is an evangelical Christian, I don't recall a single conversation with anyone about religious matters in the years I lived and worked in the capital. Our house in London was right next to a church. We talked to the tiny congregation about the weather, about the need to prune the rose bushes and mend the fence, but we never talked about God. How different it is here on this side of the Atlantic. The early settlers came here in part to practice their faith as they saw fit. Since then, the right to trumpet your religious affiliations loud and clear has been part of the warp and weft of American life. And I'm not talking about the Bible Belt or or about the loopy folk who live in log cabins in Idaho and Oregon and worry that the government is poisoning their water. I'm talking about Mr. and Mrs. Average in normal town, USA. Mr. and Mrs. Average share an uncomplicated faith with its roots in the Puritanism of the forebears. According to that faith, there is such a thing as heaven. Eighty-six percent of Americans, we are told by the pollsters, believe in heaven. But much more striking for me and much more pertinent to current world events is that 76 percent or three out of four people you meet on any American street believe in hell and the existence of Satan. They believe that the devil is out to get you and the force is a force in the world to be engaged in battle. Much of the battle takes place in the forms of prayer. Americans will talk of praying as if it were the most normal, rational thing to do. The jolly, plump woman who delivers our mail in the Washington suburbs has a son who is ill. The doctors who are doing their best, she says, but she's praying hard, and that's what will do the trick. During the last week, a child who has been missing for nine months has been found safe and well. The event was described routinely on the news media as a miracle. One broadcast had a caption reading, The Power of Prayer. In fact, the child had been abducted and her abductor was recognized and captured. In rational old Britain, the media circus following the finding of the child would have focused on ways of preventing this from happening again, on police errors in the investigation. But here, metaphorically, sometimes literally, they just sink to their knees. When we look at 
the world as a whole. We see terrorists and we see nuclear proliferation and we see all of the issues that are in this world. But do you know that if today is a normal day, if today is a normal day in South America, 10,000 people today will claim Christ. If today is a normal day in Africa, south of the Sahara, 20,000 people will claim to be born again today. If today is a normal day in the People's Republic of China, 32,000 people today will come to know Christ. Now, obviously, I'm not speaking up or vouching for all those, what those statistics represent. I don't know. But again, I know that if we take our understanding of the world from purely secular sources, we're going to have an earthly perspective, which will always bring about spiritual slippage. Uh, Notice how he, he ends here. Verse 28, he says, But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. How you start is important. How you finish, I wonder if that's more important. And you won't finish unless you add to your faith perseverance. That's why Peter says, those who do this, don't fall. If you don't, you know as well as I do, the storms will come and they will be vicious. If perseverance is not in your arsenal, you're going, you're going to fall. The story's told of a couple of missionaries, late 20s, coming back from about 50 years in Africa as missionaries. Uh, they went there as soon as they got married. They spent just about their, all their days there, uh, raised their family, lost some there, paid an incredible price to, to serve in, in a tribal situation. But because of their health, their mission organization was bringing them back home. They got on the, the ocean liner to come back over the Atlantic and as they did, they were kind of started to get on board. They were pushed off to the side and allowed a U.S. senator who had been there for two weeks on a goodwill mission and his entourage to come up on, on the ship. The whole time on the way back, the, the couple watched the senator and his group partying and immoral drunkenness, uh, arrogant, loud. They just watched. When, when the ship finally made it into New York, the, the couple came down, but... Uh, Miscommunication. The mission agency uh, wasn't there to pick them up. And if they were picked up, they weren't sure where they were going to go. They, their home was, was Africa now. And so they just kind of stood there wondering. Uh, down came the senator and his entourage to literally a, a band was playing. The photographers for the newspapers were all there taking pictures. They had a little canopy with hors d'oeuvres set out. And he was being hailed as, as, a, as a hero who loved Africa. And the missionary couple just watching this and the gal, big tears running down her face. She looked up at, at her husband. She said, it's just not fair. This guy does not love Africa. We love those people. We've given so much of our life there. This was a publicity stunt. And we saw how he lived. But when we came home, there was nothing for us. But when he came home, oh, the bands and he's the hero and everything else. And the, 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 the man kind of wiped the tear from her face and said, well, Sweetie, we're not home yet. If, in fact, we have this mindset that this is our home, we've got to get all we can get, then, then we're going to view people not in relationship to God, but into relationship to what they have, what they don't have. We're going to view ourselves 
in not relationship to God, but what we don't have and how bad life is for us. But we realize this is not our home. We're, we're, not, we're not home yet. And we will see life through his eyes. Uh, once the, the issue, the key, the central part of this whole chapter is entering into sanctuary. So let me ask you, not, not trying to make you feel, feel, feel guilty, but when was the last time you were in sanctuary? Where, where he was able to transform, and this transformation, I think a whole life process, worldly perspective to a heavenly perspective. 